Um, I, I wonder how it is that you approached our gathering this morning. What, what were your expectations? Uh, we've, we've come together, um, and we've come together to do what the Bible tells us to do. The Bible says we should sing, so we've sung, we've prayed, we've shared the Lord's Supper, we've heard the Bible. That's what the Bible tells us to do when we come together, and we've done those things. The question is, what if everything that we have done as we've come together, if all of it amounted to nothing, if it was worthless? Or, or to put it more pointedly, what if God hates all of this? I wonder if anybody, as we came together this morning, was thinking, you know what, I wonder if God hates what we're doing here. That's a difficult question, isn't it? Our passage is going to help us to think it through. Um, but, but imagine with me that you're going to a birthday party. Um, and, you know, you, you put quite a lot of effort into going to the party. You travel some distance, but it's worth it. No, you, you put the effort in. Um, you take some time to carefully choose a gift. Um, and when you get there, um, the, the birthday girl says, why did you bother? I don't want you here and I don't want your gift. That'd be rude, wouldn't it? We'd be offended by that. We'd be put out, wouldn't we? I wonder if we should think of God like that. Now, if God were to call our efforts at worship worthless, would we be offended? Would we think it's a little bit rude? You know, we've at least made the effort to be here, haven't we? At least God could be polite and say, thank you, couldn't he? Well, the book of Isaiah brings God to us in his indescribable greatness. Uh, the Holy One of Israel. That's Isaiah's favorite description of God. And he shows that God cannot be... Not there yet. Not there. What's wrong? Swap, swap the microphone. Okay. I will do that. Is that all right? Do I need to swap? Yet. Not yet. Okay. <laughs> if I need to swap, you'll let me know. You'll let me know. Good. Um, God. Um, Isaiah speaks to us about God and his indescribable greatness. God who can't be squashed into a box. If you try and put him in a box, he will, he will blow out of it. Uh, the, the question that runs through the book of Isaiah is, what is God really like? Uh, and Isaiah will make us wrestle with the overwhelming problem of God until we are undone and redone. You see, what we really think about God flows in the undercurrent of our gatherings. We might not always see it on the surface, but what we think about God will be jiggling about in our hearts. And the question we have to think about, because our passage makes us think of it, what if God hates all of this? I will swap now. Okay, how's that? Is that better? Everyone happy? I'll take that. It's our second Sunday in Isaiah. Um, the, the first five chapters of Isaiah are, are kind of building up a picture for us. They're, they're setting the kind of the context for what we see in chapter six. In chapter six, we hear about Isaiah's call as a prophet. The first five chapters are getting us ready for that. Last time we saw that it is a moment of reckoning. God appeals to his people who have turned from him. They've been running far away from his offer of life. And we saw last week that to refuse life 
is crazy, to refuse life is tragic, and to refuse life is not necessary. And we saw in that passage, we heard in that passage, God appealing with the heart of a father as he holds out the medicine of his mercy. Uh, We finished in verse 9 of of the chapter where there's a comparison between the people and the ancient cities of Sodom and Gomorrah, cities famous for their wickedness. Uh, And God says to him in verse 9 to these people, you're just like them. You deserve all the judgment that fell upon them. Well, verse 10 picks up on that comparison. Our passage begins saying, if you look with me, verse 10, Hear the word of the Lord, you rulers of Sodom. Listen to the instruction of our God, you people of Gomorrah. This is really harsh. Really, really harsh. In in our kind of terms, maybe, it'd be a bit like saying, listen up, you Nazis. No, you people who orchestrated the Holocaust... I'm talking to you. That's the impact of what he says. Uh, Another prophet, Ezekiel, speaks about the sins of these ancient cities. He puts it like this and says, They were arrogant, overfed, and unconcerned. They did not help the poor and needy. They were haughty and did detestable things before me. In verse 10, God is saying to the people, that is what you are like. The point is, God knows exactly what they are like. And the same is true for us. God knows exactly what we are like. In fact, he knows us better than we know ourselves. And it can be hard to hear that. Imagine being told, you know, think about the most despised group in society while you're on a level with that group. We'd recoil, wouldn't we, to be told that. We'd we'd think, no, 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 not not me. Now, I, I know that I'm not perfect, but I'm not that bad, am I? And I think that's what the people are doing here. As, as they hear this description, that they say, Sodom and Gomorrah? No, not us. That, that's not what we're like. We are good religious people. We are people who go to church. We're there every week. In fact, not just every week, we're twice a week. We, we, we are there all the time. We go to the prayer meeting. We sing the loudest. We are, we, we are religious people. They fall back on their religious practices to avoid the truth about their hearts. Now, this is a difficult passage for us to hear because it cuts very close to the bone, especially for those of us who are involved in the life of the church, who gather to worship. We have to ask, could we have built up an illusion of our position before God because of what we do when we come together? No, we think we are okay because of what we do when we come together. And God knows. God knows. God is... God knows, and he is more gracious than we can imagine. Even in verse 10, he is speaking to them. The rulers of Sodom and the people of Gomorrah, he knows what they are like, but he's calling out to them because he wants to get to them. But if he's going to get to them, he has to dismantle their pretensions. When I was at university, I went to a a liberal church. That means it was a church where they weren't taught the gospel. They, they didn't know that Jesus was the saviour who they needed to trust for the forgiveness of their sins. And, and it was this guy who went to this church, a guy called Peter. He'd gone to the church for many, many years, happily gone along to the church, and he was content that there was no problem between him and a holy God. He was content that his life was fine, and that when he died, he probably would go to heaven. But then he heard the gospel. 
And after he heard the gospel, he said, in effect, he said, for 30 years I've been coming to this church and I thought I was okay until I heard how much I needed Jesus and how much Jesus wanted to give. He had his pretensions dismantled, his false securities taken away so that he could receive a love that was greater than all the world. So the Lord speaks in Isaiah. And as he speaks, really, he's hitting two targets in our passage. Uh, His first target is worthless worship, verse 11 to 17, and then weighty worship at the end. Uh, Let's look first. Worthless worship, verse 11 to 17. You, You see that verse 11 begins with a question. In fact, it's a question that goes on and on. It's a repeated question. When it says, says the Lord, it's the Lord is keeping on saying this question over and over again. And the question is, what does God think of your worship? He says, the multitude of your sacrifices, what are they to me? What is the point? Now, I've got to be clear that everything that is described in these verses is good worship. This is the worship God has instructed, the sacrifices, the various sacrifices, the offerings, the the special days, the prayer. It is good and proper worship. They are doing the right things, and they're doing lots of the right things. It says that there is a multitude to their sacrifices, loads of them. In verse 15, it says their prayers are many. Loads of sacrifices, loads of prayers, and God says, what are they to me? He doesn't give them time to think. He answers straight away. And he doesn't hold back. He says, I've had enough. I have no pleasure. When you come to appear before me, who has asked of this trampling of my courts? He's saying, you're not welcome here. You're not invited. Why are you even here trampling on my courts and destroying the place of worship? Verse 13, he says, your offerings are meaningless. Your incense, it's detestable to me. Verse 14, your special days of celebration, I hate with all my being. Do you feel the horror of that? The creator of the ends of the earth, the everlasting God, finds what they are doing to be repulsive to the depths of of his being. He hates their worship. They've become a burden to me. I am weary of bearing them. This is God who never grows tired or weary, but he's wearied by this. He's trying to get them to see how worthless their worship is. That God hates it. He's fed up with it. He's he's done putting up with it. And these people, they think they are worshipping the Lord. And they're doing the right things in their worship. And they, they, they may well be totally sincere as they are doing it, but there is a vital, vital element missing. What's gone wrong with their worship? Uh, Next weekend, Saturday, uh, Lizzie is lucky to be marrying Alex. (laughs) He paid me to say that. Um, Imagine, next Saturday it happens, the ceremony's there and everything goes according to plan. All the right things are done in the right way. There are certain things that need to be said and they're all said and it's all registered and it's all written up right. Uh, And it's a lot of fun and there's a lot of celebration. But then it turns out at the end of the day that Lizzie is already married to someone else. (laughs) No, no, she doesn't mind about that. She's happy to marry Alex as well, but she, 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 she was happy to go along with it all. She was sincere in it. She enjoyed the day. But when you find out that, 
The whole day looks different, doesn't it? What does Alex think at the end of the day? Whatever was so good and right and done in the right way looks completely different when you find out what is really going on. Now, what's the problem with the worship in this passage? Well, in verse 13, God says, I cannot bear your worthless assemblies. Uh, Another translation, the English Standard Version says, I cannot endure iniquity and solemn assembly. There's a solemnity to their worship, a seriousness to it, but there is something that makes it worthless. And what makes it worthless is that the solemnness is combined and wrapped up with iniquity. He says in verse 15, your hands are full of blood. That's what makes their worship worthless, is they're mixing up sin and seriousness. There is wickedness and worship. And the problem isn't that they sin, because we all sin, and so much of the worship they offered was related to their sin. They were offerings for sin, blood sacrifices for sin. The problem is not that they sinned. The problem is that they are clinging onto their sin for dear life and they will not let it go. So God appeals to them. You see how he appeals in verse 16? He says, wash and make yourselves clean. Take your evil deeds out of my sight. Stop doing wrong. Learn to do right. Seek justice. Defend the oppressed. Take up the cause of the fatherless. Plead the cause of the widow. We see here again why the comparison to Sodom and Gomorrah is so apt. Remember what was the problem in those places? Arrogant, overfed, unconcerned. They did not help the poor and the needy. But they were haughty and did detestable things. Now, all of God's commands are summed up in the great command to love God with all that you are and love your neighbor as yourself. And the shape of the love that we are to have for others is especially designed to reach out to the most vulnerable, the oppressed, the fatherless, the widow, those who haven't got means to defend themselves. It's a love that is especially designed to love out regardless, not loving to get paid back, but it's a love that goes out and reaches out to those who most need it. A special care for those who are especially fragile. Love that is meant to work out in personal ways. It notices the need. It's not unconcerned. But it notices and then moves toward. It's love that loves to give out. Love that works out in more systemic ways. Not being overfed and arrogant. But thinking about the part we play in society. Our purchasing power, our political influence, the the things we support, the things we refuse to support because it's a love which is always searching to care for the most vulnerable. Not turning a blind eye, but looking, special care for those who are especially fragile. It's it's a love that has, in, in some ways, a particular poignancy for churches in our times. The last couple of years have uncovered some terrible abuses of power in churches. Churches very much like our own, where people meet to do what the Bible says, but the leaders have used their power to push people down who can't stop it. And it's easily done. And then when that's going on, those leaders have gone to lead worship on a Sunday. And what does the Lord think of that? Some of those leaders have been incredibly successful. A guy called Ravi Zacharias, an international speaker, defender of the faith, an author. People would flock to hear him. And he was good, really, really good. He had a a huge mind and he was able to show the truth of Christianity. 
And yet it turns out that all the while he was forcing vulnerable women to have sexual relations with him in secret. What does the Lord think about his orthodox worship? What about us? So easy to look over there, isn't it? Much harder to look in here. Now, as we go through the motions of Christian worship, what are we doing with our sin? Now, these people who the Lord addresses in our passage, what do they think they're doing? Or what do they think their worship is for? How would they answer the Lord's question? What is the point? Now, they're not holding back in their worship. There's loads of it, loads of sacrifices. Their prayer meetings are packed. We would love to see our prayer meetings packed. But it seems they've lost sight of what God is like. Now, if they think that they can offer sacrifices for the sins that they still cling on to, then they've lost sight of God's holiness. They've got a weak understanding of the offence of their sin, and even worse, they have just misjudged the immensity of his mercy. Now, what do they think they're doing? Do they think they can... The, the sacrifices are a kind of mechanism. No, as long as they just keep going through the motions of it, they can keep on doing their sin. A Ravi Zacharias said something like that. So something along the lines of, he was doing such a good job for the Lord that he deserved some reward. Which is vile, isn't it? But then we can do the same thing as we ease our consciences with prayer and praise whilst we refuse to turn from our sin. God says, what are they to me? It's the right form of worship, but the heart is wrong. It's so easy for us to slip into that way of thinking. We, we think as long as I keep going to church, keep reading the Bible, I pray, I take the Lord's Supper, then it doesn't matter how I live. No, we can say the words, can't we? We can pray, forgive us our sins, but still cherish them in our hearts. And God hates that kind of hypocrisy. What about us? We have to ask, don't we, is my worship acceptable to God? A bit later in Isaiah, he puts the matter like this. Surely the arm of the Lord is not too short to save, nor his ear too dull to hear, but your iniquities have separated you from your God. Your sins have hidden his face from you so that he will not hear. And outwardly, our worship can look brilliant. But the Lord can hate it with all his being because we're not turning from our sin. And our, our prayers can be fervent and they can be long. But verse 15 says, when you spread out your hands in prayer, I hide my eyes from you. Even when you offer many prayers, I'm not listening. No, literally it says, it isn't me who is listening. Whoever it is you think you are talking to, it's not me, says God. From God's perspective, if we refuse to turn from our sin, it's as though we're lifting to him hands filled up with blood. Like Lady Macbeth with the stain of blood that can't be removed, the guilt that cannot be shaken. And then what? What's the answer? Well, verse 16 and 17 are clear, aren't they? You see the appeal in verse 16 and 17. Wash and make yourselves clean. You must be pure in God's sight. That's the only way to offer acceptable worship. Your sins must be removed or God will not hear. Because worship without repentance is worthless. So verse 16 and 17 are a call to repent from sin, to turn from sin, stop doing wrong, learn to do good. That's what repentance is. And God knows. 
God knows. He calls these people Sodom and Gomorrah. He knows what they do. He, he knows their hearts. And he is more gracious than they have reckoned. So he's calling to them. But if he's going to get them, he's got to dismantle their pretensions. So he shows them that worship without repentance is worthless. So that he can hit his second target in our passage. Not worthless worship, but weighty worship. The alliteration is a bit naffy. Um, weighty, like something of substance, something that, that has real meaning to it. The kind of worship that God loves to receive. God knows what they're like, Sodom and Gomorrah, but he speaks. And he, and he does hate their worship. He genuinely is sick of it. He's done with it. When they pray like that, he hides their eyes. When they keep praying, he's not listening. But, but he is not done with them. And verse 18, look at verse 18. It's a verse when he, he looks them in the eye and he speaks very gently. And he says, come now. He says, oh, come, let's, let's, let's talk it through together. In verse 11, he keeps asking the question, the multitude of your sacrifices, what are they to me? What are they to me? What are they to me? But in verse 18, there's something else that he keeps saying. He's going to keep on saying it. He says, come on, come on, let's, let, let's settle the matter. And I wonder if we would let the Lord speak so directly to us this morning. Now, would you let him speak into your heart and say, oh, come on, come on, let's, let's sort this out, shall we? It's as if he's, he's saying, he's saying, look, no, you, your sin has built up this huge barrier between us. And, and so all the worship you're doing it is, it is worthless when that sin barrier remains. And, and, and in a sense, I'm not really that interested in your worship, but I do want you. So can we talk about it? And this is how it's going to be sorted. He says, though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall be like wool. Even though, he says, though your sins are scarlet. In verse 15, he said, your hands are filled with blood. Their hands are scarlet. It's as though they've murdered someone. They've plunged their hands into the corpse and then they've lifted them up in prayer to God. Scarlet sins, red as crimson. Sins that are the very worst. That's what God wants them to know. And he wants us to know it too. That though our sins be most vile. And should we be guilty of the most unimaginable wickedness. And that every fibre of our being is stained bright with the iniquity. Even then the Lord says. Even then they can become white as snow. Just like wool. And God is tenderly holding out. The transformation of their corruption. That their sin can be removed, however deep the stain, utterly cleansed. Washed the purest of white, just no mark of it left remaining after the cleansing. It's a wonderful offer, isn't it? No, it's such a, can we just stay on it for a moment? No, it, our sin carries a great penalty with it. It's a penalty too great to understand. Because our sin always at its heart is a sin against God who is infinite. And so our offense is in exact proportion. There is an infinite guilt attached to every sin. But then this offer comes for that whole of it to be taken away. And the outcome is that no accusation can stick to us any longer. The outcome is, is that we can stand up in a court before the judgment of God and before his perfect examination. That the declaration at the end will be there is no sin 
to be found. Imagine that. You know, and our sin messes with our heads, doesn't it? But we've never had a pure thought or a perfect motive. We're always muddled. The nature we inherited is fractured, like, like a bird with broken wings. Our hearts can't love straight. They, 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 they go wonky. We can't not sin. We've never known it to be otherwise. But this offer that comes here is that that stain of sin is so removed that we are no longer able to sin. I can't imagine what that would be like to be pure. But the Lord says it. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. And we want to ask, how? How can he offer something like that? Or we can track a line through Isaiah here. You see, in verse 14, he says he hates their worship with all his being. Literally, he says, my soul hates. The soul of God is repulsed by hypocritical worship that has no repentance. But there's only one other point in the book of Isaiah that God speaks about his soul and the passions of his soul. And it comes in chapter 42 when God says, here is my servant whom I uphold, my chosen one, in whom I delight, in whom my soul delights. I will put my spirit on him, and he will bring justice to the nations. This is the same servant of the Lord, spoken of in Isaiah 53, who who gives his perfect life as an offering for sin. And in the fullness of time, this servant of the Lord was baptized by John and the spirit was put on him. And and Father God cried from heaven, this is my son whom I love with him. I am, I'm so pleased. My soul delights in him. The happiness of heaven is poured from the father onto the son by the spirit. There is a constant stream of delight. And then Jesus Christ sets his face resolutely for Jerusalem. He sets his face resolutely to where he will be handed over by his friend and then handed over to the Romans and then he would be nailed to a cruel cross. And on that cross he became sin. He who knew no sin of his own, he became sin for us and was crushed under the infinite penalty carried by our guilt. That crimson stain, Even the vilest of our offense, it was put onto Jesus. And then in return, all of his perfection and purity is written over us. That's what all those animal sacrifices of old pointed to. It was impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sin, but they were there as a reminder to point towards our great need. And the blood of the animals was a sign of cleansing, but it wasn't until Jesus Christ shed his own blood And offered himself through the eternal spirit, unblemished to God, that our consciences are cleansed. Because that's what God can do with your sin. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. God's not going to turn a blind eye to your sin. He's not going to pretend it doesn't matter or sweep it away under the carpet. But he will offer to cleanse. Even the foulest heart and the muckiest imagination and the most vile of all desires, the darkest stain, to bring about an outcome. An outcome that, that those like us, those like us who repulse God with our false worship, get gathered into that stream of infinite delight, included in all the happiness that the Father has over his Son, with the soul of God delighted in us. 
who are found to be in Jesus. Because the worship that God loves to receive is the worship that comes from his beloved children who pour out their hearts to him. And in our passage, the tenderness doesn't let up. Now we think, well, who, who, who can get in on this, this astonishing offer of grace? Who, who is it for? Well, verse 19 says, If you are willing and obedient, you will eat the good things of the land. But if you resist and rebel, you will be devoured by the sword, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. There are two outcomes. One is to be devoured by the sword. One is to be consumed in destruction. It's the only outcome for sinners who don't repent. Those who resist and rebel, who keep saying no to God, eventually that will become final. But the other outcome is to eat the good of the land. This is an echo from Eden in the beginning, the goodness of creation, when God said, eat, enjoy the goodness of what I've made. It's all for your happiness. Enjoy the good world. And what God made in the beginning, he will bring to fullness in the end. You see, after all of the sadness is done and all the sorrow is over and the last tear has been wiped away, then the risen Lord Jesus from the throne of heaven will say, I am making everything new and the good world will be restored. It will be set free from decay and the goodness of the land will be enjoyed forever and ever in that endless happiness of God. Who can get in on it? Look what verse 19 says. It says, if you are willing and obedient. Now, this obedience is not performance. Literally, it is, and you listen. God's saying, I'm going to do this for you. Will you hear me? Will you listen to what God says? Don't do it your own way. Do it my way, says God. I'm telling you how it can be done. Will you hear? But do you get the gentleness? He says, if you're willing. If you want this, you can have it. Now, all of this, this outrageous grace of God, he says, if you're, if you're willing. The whole heinous offense of your sin, the vilest offender who truly believes that moment from Jesus, a pardon receives. You'll be washed pure white and enjoy the good of the land. If you want it. If you're willing, it's held out. But don't you love what God is like? Now, this is the weighty worship. Those who acknowledge their sin, who want to be pure, and so who turn to trust the Lord, turn away from worthless things to trust the Lord. Because worship without repentance is worthless. But God appeals to worthless worshippers to receive mercy, and he appeals with such tenderness, if you want it. Now, I asked at the beginning, I asked at the beginning about our worship today. Is it worthless? The Bible tells us there are things to do when we gather. We're to sing, to pray, to take the supper. We hear the Bible. We do those things. We can do those things in so many different ways, can't we? You go around to different churches, you'll see those same things done in lots of different ways, different orders, different, different styles. It doesn't really matter. What matters is what is going on in our hearts. It's not about how well you sing. It's about the well out of which you sing. Not about how well you pray, but it's about the well out of which you pray. Isaiah 66 verse 2 says this. 
God says, these are the ones I look on with favour. These are the ones that the happy kindness of God shines upon. Those who are humble and contrite in spirit and who tremble at my word. That's those who acknowledge their sin and recognise their weakness. And then just come as they are. Don't come with any pretense or any show. Those who want to use the ordinary things God has given us to worship, our song, our prayer, the Bible. But we don't trust the things We look to the one who gives them. So we don't refuse the tenderness of his invitation to mercy. We seek to put our sin away. We we, we seek not to hold it or to cherish it, but to stop it. And we we love to hear the gentle call. Come now. Let us settle the matter. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. You know, this day, if if you are aware that there is some sin in your life that you've not repented of, something you're holding on to, let me encourage you to consider what God makes of your worship and hear his gentle invitation. If you want, if you're willing, he will give. Let's take a moment of quiet. Consider your heart before the Lord, and then we'll pray.